Well, we're in Acts. Shocker. <laughs> Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you for today. Open our hearts, open our minds. Pour into every one of us today what you want for us to have. God, help us today to see. Help us to see who you are and how you feel about us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a time when I was a kid, believe it or not, some of you are going to find this really hard to believe. Please don't laugh at me again, but some of you are going to find it really hard to believe I used to be small. No, like, like really, I used to be small. Like when I started, my freshman year in high school, I went out for football. Coach said, if you don't put on weight, you can't play football. I should have not played football. It would have been better for me in the long run. But I, I was small. As a kid, I was small. And I lived in a, in a neighborhood where I, I lived with my mom and my grandmother on the corner. And then next door was a, an aunt and uncle and their kids. And then next door to them was another aunt and uncle and their kids. And we lived across the street from an elementary school, and we kind of ran the neighborhood. There was a bunch of us, and we ran the neighborhood, and we were all pretty close together in age, two, three years separated, um, some of us. And, and I was the younger of the boys, and my two older cousins would sometimes beat up on me. I used to get bullied, except we didn't call it bullying back in those days. We just called it, I got beat up, and somebody teach you how to fight back. So anyway, um, so, so my cousins, would they would beat me up. The, the way it worked in my family is if anybody in the neighborhood messed with us, you were going to get all of us. But if there was a break and we didn't have nobody else to fight with, we fought amongst ourselves. We were much like the church. Did y'all catch that one? I slung that one by you real quick. We were much like the church. If the church had, anyway, I'm not going to say, there was a rabbit. So there was one particular time I remember when I was writing this message, it came to my, my memory, that, that there was one particular time we were behind my aunt's trailer house, and, and my cousins had me kind of under the house, and they were beating me up, and I was on the ground, and I was just kind of taking it. I didn't learn how to fight back yet, and I was just taking it and hollering, and evidently my mom heard or saw something, and she had been seeing the, the, the black eyes and the bloody nose along the way, and and so she was paying attention is what I'm, I'm assuming. And all of a sudden, I remember my two cousins were on top of me beating me, and one of them just flies away, just shoo. Like he got sucked to heaven or something, just a shoo. And I went, and I looked back, and I seen these legs, and then my other cousin, shoo. And he flew about five or six yards, and I looked up, and it was my mama. And I'll never forget, I remembered what I felt this week when I had that memory. I felt... I felt validated, I felt covered, I felt protected, I felt like somebody was paying attention to me, I felt like somebody was finally on my side. In that moment, I remembered what I felt like, I said, my mama got him. <laughs> Listen, my mama was pretty, she was a little big boned, but she wasn't heavy. She could drive a dump truck, but she'll punch you in the mouth. Like, that's for real. Ask Cheryl. Cheryl was scared of my mom. We almost didn't, we almost didn't keep dating because my mama intimidated her. So, like, you don't mess with my mama. Anyway. So the title of today's message is When God Slaps Back. When God Slaps Back. And I want to show you how God is our defender. And he's really, really good at what he does. If you've been journeying with us the last couple of weeks in the book of Acts, 
you can feel the, the pressure and the tension rising for Paul. It's getting very serious for Paul right now. In the previous chapter, he was arrested and falsely accused. Uh, the commanding officer, the commander of the, of the army, sent Paul to get whipped. And they had him ready to be beaten with whips. And Paul goes, I'm a Roman citizen. And they all jumped back because if any of them would have whipped Paul and he was a Roman citizen, they would have been executed for whipping a Roman citizen. You don't, Roman citizens don't get executed or they don't get um, uh, beaten like that. You don't do that to your own citizens. You do that to outsiders. And so Paul, in a moment, confesses that he's a Roman citizen. They all pull back. He gets out of the beating, and it was going to be a bad beating. And then the, commanding, the commander calls the high priest into a session, and the high priest comes with a, all of his cronies. You've got Pharisees, and you've got Sadducees, and all these religious leaders in this court-like environment. And the commander calls him in because he wants to hear Paul's case. He's not sure why they wanted Paul arrested. He's not sure why they wanted to kill Paul. They were saying, kill him, kill him, kill him, kill him. And he was falsely accused. And so we pick the story up today in chapter 23, starting in verse 1. Paul is about to speak, but he doesn't get to say much. Gazing intently at the high council, Paul began, Brothers, I've always lived before God with a clear conscience, exclamation mark. Instantly, Ananias the high priest commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? And then those standing near Paul said to him, do you dare insult the high priest? Watch this tone change, verse 5. I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest, Paul replied. For the scriptures say, you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Man, what a moment. Like chapter 3 just takes off. There's a court-like environment. It's, it's probably in a courtyard. There's all these religious leaders. There's the army, the commander, and there's Paul. And Paul's trying to plead his case. Paul is trying to get along with the Jews. He's trying to get along with the Jewish leaders. And, and he's, he's done everything that he can to bring some kind of peace into this moment. He's a man of God. He wants to deliver God's message in this moment. And he gets one sentence out, brothers, I've always lived before God with a clear conscience, and they all, they all break loose against him. He gets slapped in the mouth. This is good stuff. Really, pastor, to get slapped in the mouth? Well, maybe not that part, but so things are really heating up for Paul. <laughs> and the high priest has him slapped. In the King James Version, it uses a different word besides slapped or slap. It, it uses the word smite. And the word smite in the Greek is the word tuptu. And it means to strike with the palm of the hand, right here, with the purpose of offending. So when someone was smited or someone was slapped, the purpose of slapping them with an open hand was to insult and to offend. So the high priest was offended because of what Paul said. So instead of doing what he's supposed to be doing, acting like Jesus, he has Paul slapped to offend him back. 
You ever wanted to pay somebody back? <laughs> it was the old principle of fighting fire with fire. And the high priest honestly just wanted to get his own revenge against Paul. He was tired of Paul. Everything he had tried to do to kill Paul has not worked up until this point. He's frustrated with Paul. Can't stand Paul. If you remember the last two weeks of messages, it, the, we explained and we talked about why they didn't like Paul because Paul taught people that you can get to God without going through the Jewish religions and the Jewish traditions. You can go directly to God. And they wanted to shut that down because if that, became, if that began to spread, then they would not have a job anymore because they lived off of their Jewish traditions. And making sure that people kept the law and people did all these things just right and circumcision happened and all this. It's kind of sick if you think about it. So everything he's been trying to do to Paul is not working. I love Paul's response. Man, this is what we got to get today. Paul says, God will slap you. Shwap. God's going to slap you. Some of you are like, Pastor, I come, from, I come from Franklin. I mean, like, we don't even talk. We just hit back. Like, you know, it's, it's a natural, it's a knee-jerk reaction. Hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Anybody raised like that? I want you to notice, though, Paul didn't slap back. Instead, he put them on notice that God was going to do the slapping from now on. This is a big deal. I did a little research, and there's about four people in the Bible that it uses the word smite or slapped. And, and the first one was Micaiah. He was, a, uh, I think he was a prophet, and he had prophesied to a king and maybe brought some correction to the king, and the king didn't like it, and the king slapped him. And he called down a curse on the king. He said, God's going to do this to you. And sure enough, it happened. The next one was Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied something that God told him to prophesy. He gets slapped in the face, and he says, God's going to deal with you. And God dealt with him. Jesus is the third one to get slapped in the face. But Jesus didn't call down anything. Jesus had a different purpose. Jesus knew he was going to be struck. He knew he was going to be wounded. He knew he was going to have stripes and open wounds. He was ready for it and he was prepared for it. And then Paul, being the fourth one, gets slapped. And all he says is, God's going to slap you back. Now, Paul did get in the flesh a little bit. He called the high priest a corrupt hypocrite. Okay, I'll give him that one. I'm like, come on, man. Like y'all would have done better. I wouldn't have done better. I've had this thought for several years now, and I hope I can put it in the right words. It's better for my offender if I slap them back instead of me waiting for God to slap them back. It's better for them if I just go ahead and hit them now. Because if I hit you, you're going to get over that. But if my father comes in and he hits you, you might not get over that. You follow what I'm saying? It's like it's better for me to be in the flesh for you. Not that it's better for me to be in the flesh. 
but just trying to show you the magnitude of the difference. I want to pay people back. I want to get my own vengeance. But what I'm actually doing is letting them off the hook a little bit easier. So an offense happens to Paul, and Paul responds like Jesus. Then Paul divides the crowd. Paul sees an opportunity. So there's this high-tense moment, this just high-tense moment. I mean, it's, they're shouting. There's, Paul gets slapped. He screams back, you can't talk to the high priest like this. And it's getting loud, and it, it's getting violent, and all this stuff's going on. And Paul sees a way out. In the midst of all this turmoil, Paul sees his way of escape. Paul looks at the crowd and he sees Pharisees and he sees Sadducees. And Paul was a Pharisee because of what he believed. And so Paul said, brothers, I'm a Pharisee. And I'm here because of the resurrection. And he divides the crowd against itself. You remember the verse, a house divided cannot stand? Paul saw a moment. He saw a way of escape. God gave him, I believe it was divinely given to him by the Holy Spirit. He saw it in that moment of violence. He seemed, let me divide the crowd. I can get out. Paul divides the crowd. The crowd starts fighting between themselves. And I'm, I'm reading too because I didn't want to read too much scripture today. But, but the, the, the crowd divide, they're, they're divided. They're fighting against each other now. They're pulling on Paul. The commander says, to the, to the officers, go and get him. They might pull him apart. That's how violent it was getting. So they go in and they arrest, they grab Paul, they rescue him, and then they put him in jail. And we pick the story back up in verse 11. Nighttime comes. What is it about nighttime? Why do you think about stuff at night that you don't think about during the day? It's because you don't stop enough. You don't stop long enough, right? Why, why does your brain kick in the gear when you lay your head on the pillow? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like we could have thought about this all day. I'm trying to sleep and not think, and you want to think about this. Verse 11, that night the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you've been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. So after all of this, Paul finds himself at night alone in some kind of a prison. And I want you to remember for a minute all that Paul's been through up to this point. Back up a couple of weeks, Paul's just trying to leave Asia to get to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit had been telling him in every city that he goes to what lies ahead of him. This is in the, the Holy Spirit said, Jerusalem lies ahead of you, jail lies ahead of you, and suffering lies ahead of you. So Paul finished up his work in Asia, and he's trying to get to Jerusalem, but the believers in Asia keep begging him to stay. The people he loved and the people that loved him are begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Don't tell me that didn't pull on, on Paul's heart. Don't tell me that didn't mess him up somehow. Don't tell me that didn't make him question his calling and his purpose. Because these were people that genuinely loved him and he loved them. 
And then he gets to Jerusalem, and the, the believers in Jerusalem say, Paul, listen, your reputation with the Jews is jacked up, bro. Like, you have to do something to make this right. And so they tell him, you need to go into the temple and perform a cleansing ceremony to show all these religious leaders that you're still with the Jews, like you're not against them. And Paul, so Paul's trying to make peace. He goes into the temple. He's doing the ceremony. They arrest him in the temple. And they accuse him of bringing Gentiles into the temple and so he gets arrested. And then all this trouble happens. He's nearly beaten. Now he's nearly ripped apart. He got in a fight with the high priest. He called him a corrupt hypocrite. And then he got shut down. Theologians believe that that night for Paul was a very desperate night. You ever have a desperate night? You ever have a night when you didn't know what, was gonna, what it was going to be like when you woke up? Paul had one of those nights. It's believed that Paul was wrestling with failure. It's believed that Paul, Paul felt like he blew his opportunity to preach to the high priest and the council when he had an opportunity to preach. And if he would have said something different, maybe it wouldn't have went bad and he could have preached the whole gospel to them. That's what he was trying to do was preach the gospel to the, to the Jewish council, but it got messed up. So it's believed he felt like a failure. It, it's believed that he, he was discouraged. Down and out. Paul knows in this moment that the tension's high. He can feel that he's in the situation, right? He's the reason the tension is so high. Are you tracking with me this morning? And so Paul knows that, 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 that every moment, every word that he says, listen to me, you're going to get into some situations where you're going to have to trust the Holy Ghost for your next word. Then you're going to get into some situations where you're going to hear him say, don't say that. Say this instead. You don't believe me, just get married. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Not too loud. Up until this point, Paul has been able to do everything the Lord has told him to do and led him to do. Now he finds himself in a desperate place. So the Bible tells us in verse 11 that that night the Lord appeared to Paul. So I found that interesting. I said, man, I got I to I dig into this a little bit. I, I, I didn't come to an exact conclusion, but this is what most people believe. In the previous times, Paul saw Jesus or heard from Jesus in a vision or maybe an angel or he even saw the, the, the person in Macedonia, the Macedonian cry. Remember not too long ago, he was in the, the temple praying and he fell into a trance and he met Jesus there, right? You remember all that? That's how it normally happened. But this time the Bible says that night the Lord appeared to Paul. Some folks believe that this was a, 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 like a very unique manifestation of Jesus, in fact, when you start to dig it up in the Greek, it says it, says it like this. Like Paul was laying there in a, in a, in a place of desperation and depression, and it's, it, it speaks these terms. Jesus stood over him. The Lord appeared to Paul. It's, it's like the, the way it's described in the Greek is that the Jesus was standing over Paul, encouraging him. So 
Some people don't believe that. Some people believe it was just another vision. Either way, Jesus met Paul in a desperate place, which tells me as a human, if I'm ever in a desperate place or the next time I get to a desperate place, I can expect Jesus to show up in my desperate place and get me out. Come on, somebody. Just that word alone, whether it was Jesus in the flesh or Jesus from the eyes, it doesn't matter. I can get out of my desperation. I can get out of my depression. There is hope for me. I find it really, really cool that Jesus knew exactly where Paul was. He had the cell number. He knew what prison. And he knew exactly where to show up. God knows where you're at. Oh, he keeps his eyes on his kids. (laughs) He doesn't let you get too far. He keeps an eye on you. He knows where you're at. Even when you feel like nobody cares, even when you feel like nobody's paying attention to you, trust me, Jesus knows where you are. He's listening. He's watching. Then Jesus says this. Because Paul must have really been down in the dumps. This is proof that he was discouraged. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are, be encouraged. Paul, be filled with courage. I know you feel like a failure. I know you feel like you've blown it. I know you feel like it's over. I know you feel like it's too much. I know you feel like you can't go any further. I know you feel like quitting. I know you feel like a failure. But listen to me. Be encouraged. It goes even further. Jesus doesn't only say be encouraged, but he then starts to tell Paul, he tells Paul this, just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must go to and spread the good news to Rome. What did he just say to Paul? Paul felt like a failure. He felt like he blew it. Jesus said, no, you didn't blow it. You did exactly what I wanted you to do. It's just time to move on. So it's not failure, it's movement. Come on, somebody. It's not failure. It's movement. If you just do what God tells you to do, whether it looks like failure or not, you just keep doing what he says. It may not be failure. It may just be movement. Jesus' plans for Paul were evidently not for him to stay in Jerusalem much longer than he did. Last week, we talked about how Paul was, he, he said, I'm the man to be in Jerusalem. Jesus said, no, you're not, bro. You're going on the road. And Paul and Jesus drew a line in the sand for Paul and made Paul cross it. Paul's mission was not Jerusalem. It was just one point along his journey. So Jesus tells him, just as you've been my witness here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Jesus is saying, bro, it's time to go. Let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. Just keep moving. No time for boudin. Just keep moving. Ah. (laughs) 
Oh, the enemy's slick, isn't he? Why, why, would, why would Paul ever think he failed? Only because of his expectations for what he was supposed to do. Evidently, he had expectations on himself that Jesus never put on him. Anybody guilty? So Paul's feeling like a failure because he thought it was supposed to go a certain way. Jesus walks into the room and says, be encouraged, bro. Just like you've been a witness here, you're going to go to Rome. It's time to go to the next place. You're going to do the same thing. Watch this. Paul was not used to this speed. Paul would go into a city and stay there for sometimes months, sometimes years, and he would establish a church there. That's what he did the whole time in Asia. He was establishing churches, planning churches, raising up elders, raising up leaders, and, and, and laying a solid foundation for the church to be built on top of. That was his MO. That was his, that's how he worked. That's what he was expecting, it's believed, when he came into Jerusalem that he would spend a couple of years here developing the church in Jerusalem. God said, no, bro. I'm shifting gears on you, man. You got to get to Rome. If God shifts your gears, are you going to be okay with it? You just as soon say no. And say, I ain't going to be okay with it, but I'll learn to be okay with it. Come on, somebody, because we got to be real about the whole thing. I don't like change neither. Or either, one or the other. Somebody will correct my English later on. but So it's time to go to Rome. Now watch this. This is so God, this is so cool. This is where your eyes really have to be open. Because I want you to see how Jesus gets Paul to Rome. Because some of us, because most of us have been striving too much. I'm going to take a sip of water on that one. Some of us have believed the lie that it's all on us. But it's super cool how Jesus gets Paul to Rome. So Paul's in this high tent situation. He's got a massive group of people that want to kill him. He's in protective custody in jail. He hadn't even been charged with what he did wrong. He's just in there for protection. Well, that's cool. But it's about to get better. Watch this. Verse 12. By the way, this is the next verse. He just went to bed. And it's still nighttime, and Jesus meets him, encourages him, tells him it's time to move on. Verse 12, the next morning, a group of Jews got together and bound themselves with an oath. Listen to me, don't ever do this. This is stupid. They bound themselves with an oath to not eat or drink anything until Paul was dead. Say, that's dumb. Your brothers was about to die of starvation or dehydration. Okay. I guess it means a lot to me because I like to eat and drink. I don't know. I just, I'm like, that's the last thing I'm throwing on the table. I'm holding them chips <laughs> until the very end. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> Verse 13, there were more than, watch this, more than 40 of them in the conspiracy. So more than 40 men came to the council and said, we've taken a vow not to eat or drink anything until Paul is dead. They went to the leading priests and elders and told them, we've bound ourselves with an oath not to eat or drink until Paul is dead. You, so you and the high council should ask the commander to bring Paul back to the council again 
pretend that you want to examine his case more fully will kill him on the way. The trap is set. But Paul's nephew, there's always good butts in the Bible. Come on, somebody. Man, it's good when my butt's in the Bible, but there's some good butts in the Bible. Right? But, thank God for nephews. But Paul's nephew, his sister's son, heard of their plan and went to the fortress and told Paul. Paul, they're about to kill you, bro. There's over 40 of them. They've set a trap for you. You're about to die. Uncle Paul. Paul says, go tell the guard. And then tell the guard to go tell the commander. And so his nephew goes and tells the guard. And the guard tells the commander. And watch what happens. The officer makes a plan to move Paul to Rome that night. There were more than 40 men ready to kill Paul in an ambush. You might want to write this little quote down. The enemy of your soul always shows up shorthanded. I'm going to say it slow. The enemy of your soul always shows up shorthanded. Remember, the enemy of your soul was kicked out of heaven like lightning. Because he thought he was God. He's nowhere near God. Your, your father knows more than your enemy does. And he always shows up shorthanded. Verse 23. <laughs> then the commander called two of his officers and ordered, get 200 soldiers. Yep, that's right, 200. Get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at 9 o'clock tonight. Also, take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted troops. Verse 24, provide horses for Paul to ride and get him safely to Governor Felix. The enemy had over 40. Paul gets 470. And he gets to ride on a horse. In those days, that was like taking a limo. That brother got escorted to Caesarea. 470 men armed and ready for battle, highly trained people, ready to take Paul from that little jail cell to Caesarea. Let the enemy lie to you again. Let him lie to you again and tell him that he's more powerful than you know. Let him try to intimidate you again. You just got the word in you. God sent 470 against the enemy's 40. And you ain't excited about that. <laughs> so he says, get him safely to Governor Felix. <laughs> this is so cool. Uh, it's awesome to see how God uses man's governing system to protect the kingdom man. I don't know if there was anyone else ever escorted like that in the Bible. 
You know what's really interesting? Paul didn't have anything to do with it. I'm learning a new lesson right now. I don't even know what to call it. I'm, I'm learning how to live out of control. God's been doing some things in me and Cheryl, and he's, he's telling us to take one step, and we take that step, then he does all of this, and I go, and I've got mixed emotions because, like, there's things I should be excited about. And Cheryl, Cheryl told me the other day, she goes, you're not excited about this? I'm like, I don't even know how to feel because I had nothing to do with it. I'm used to having everything to do with it. I'm used to dictating how it's supposed to go and organizing and structuring it and getting everybody in its right place. And I'm used to being so involved. I don't know how to be uninvolved. We'll preach that message later, but it's just a new lesson I'm trying to learn is how to live out of control. Paul had nothing to do with it. He's sitting in jail discouraged. Jesus himself shows up and encourages him. Then his nephew comes out of nowhere and protects him, exposes the trap. And then the commanding officer orders 470 men to escort him all the way to Caesarea. And Paul hadn't lifted a finger. He ain't sent an email, didn't send a text message, didn't call nobody, didn't call a board meeting, didn't call nothing. He's sitting in jail, don't know what's going to happen to him. Come on, Paul, you're leaving. Right now? Yep, right now. Okay. <laughs> so Paul gets to Caesarea, and he meets Governor Felix. Governor Felix gives Paul a place to stay, and we're going to unpack this in just a minute. Watch verse 35. Felix says to Paul, I will hear your case myself when your accusers arrive. It sounds like he's not even sure if they will arrive. The governor told him. Then the governor ordered him kept in the prison at Herod's headquarters. Now, this is the NLT version, so it doesn't say it like it's, like it's supposed to be. Herod's headquarters was actually called Herod's Praetorium. And this is really important. Because Paul left the jail cell where he was under protective custody. He's escorted by 470 men armed and ready to go to battle. Gets handed off to Governor Felix. And Governor Felix puts him in Herod's Praetorium, or Herod's headquarters. So he didn't go to the local city jail. He didn't go to the parish prison. He's staying at the governor's house, y'all. Some ain't right. So you may be thinking, man, this is bad for Paul. He's being arrested. Yeah, he's also being escorted. He's also got the government protecting him. Get you some of that. And now he's got a new place to stay at Herod's Praetorium. And it wasn't even called a prison. It was called a barrack. So I, I meant to get you a picture of this, and I apologize for not doing it. I didn't know how to do it. I don't have the technical ability to do this, to take a picture from the Internet and put it on the screen. I don't know how to do that. But I looked up a picture of Herod's Praetorium. Now watch this. Herod's Praetorium is built much like a coliseum, except it wasn't like a, a baseball field where it was kind of half round. It was more of a, of a rectangle shape, and it was 
rectangle? Yeah, rectangle. It was more rectangular shaped. And it was, it was this massive thing with massive walls, multiple stories. It's set on the seashore. It's a beautiful place. It's all blinged out. You've got Herod's headquarters, his palace, where all of his concubines and everybody stays. And, and then you've got his governing officials' headquarters. And you go a little bit further down, and it's got these headquarters. And then they would, play, they would have sporting events in the Colosseum area. And then on the very end was the barracks. And it was placed on the seashore, and it was right in the, the busiest part of the city. And it's believed that Paul knew exactly what was going on around him at all times. So I'm sitting here studying this, and I'm going, hold up a second, because I've never known this before. I'm like, you mean to tell me Paul went from a jail cell in Jerusalem, escorted by 470 men to Caesarea, and now he's staying at the governor's house on the seashore, and he can keep up with what's going on. Now, don't get me wrong. He was arrested. He was incarcerated. He was under what's believed to be like a house arrest. It wasn't a dark dungeon, though. And he had liberties. His friends could come and visit with him. They could come and go. Come and go. It didn't matter. They could come and go. In fact, when you read the epistles, all the, all the books, that the, the letters that Paul wrote, you'll see at the end of those epistles, Paul says, I'm sending so-and-so with this, and so-and-so's been a blessing to me, and this one's helped me, and this one. Paul did all of that while he was in this jail. Paul would spend two years here. Two years uninterrupted. Two years of time and space to write to the churches he had planted. Ephesians came out of this time. Philippians came out of this time. Colossians came out of this time. And Philemon came out of this time. By the seashore at the governor's house. Chilling. I just got to say it, sometimes it ain't that bad to serve Jesus. Sometimes it's not as bad as we think, and sometimes it's not as bad as the enemy makes it sound. I got a friend, he's got a church on the, on the beaches of Gulf Court, I mean Gulfport, not Gulfport, uh, Destin. He's in Destin, got a, got a church on the beach in Destin. I'm like, I don't know what I did wrong, but I'm glad you got it right. I'm over here in rice fields and mosquitoes. But I'm serving Jesus, loving every bit of it. I don't like the beach anyway. The Lord knew that. I like crawfish, though. Come on, somebody. And he ain't got no DIs. Let's go get some barbecue. Let me stop. So Paul finds himself in Herod's praetorium. He didn't have to make reservations. He didn't have to call ahead. He didn't have to pack a bag. He didn't have to load the trunk. He didn't have to unload the trunk. All Paul had to do was ride. With 470 people protecting him.
Interesting, huh? So when does God slap back? Let me give you five little things I just kind of felt like the Lord wanted me to show you. Five quick things, and I'm going to wrap it up with another verse from 2 Kings. When God slaps back, I believe God slaps back when we don't slap back. Did you catch that? I believe God slaps back when I don't slap back. You remember the verse where God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay? The tone of that verse tells me that God, number one, don't like people messing with his kids. And when people do mess with his kids, he really likes to get them back. Because he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It also communicates to me that God doesn't want me to defend myself. Because I got too many more important things to do than to worry about my offenses and worry about what this one said and that one said and who did this or who did that. No time for drama. Drama's from the devil. Come on, somebody. Drama ain't nothing but a distraction. You don't have to defend yourself. So God slaps back when I don't. Doesn't mean I can't cock the gun and at least scare them. Like, I'll do that just to see how they're going to act. Maybe there's something that my heart needs to change. I don't know. I'm, I'm one of these, one of these kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like just see if they're going to jump. I'm from Franklin. I got a little bit of crazy in me. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I know where some of y'all are from. <laughs> you got it too. I'm just the one preaching today. So God slaps back when I don't slap back. Number two, I believe God slaps back when we, when we take the way of escape. Boy, let me tell you something. God always gives us a way of escape. Number one, you need to know that. Number two, then you need to start expecting that. And then number three, you need to say, Lord, help me to see the way of escape. I'm talking about temptation. I'm talking about trouble. I'm talking about when the enemy's coming after you, when you're surrounded on every side, there's always a way of escape. God slaps back when we take the way of escape. Number three, God slaps back when we are incorrigible. <laughs> I may have to park the bus here for a minute. You see, Paul was incorrigible. In other words, he was able to be encouraged. I'm afraid some of us in this room have gotten used to being discouraged. And we like the attention that comes from everybody that knows we're discouraged. So if we're not careful, we find ourselves unencourageable. Because when we're encouraged, we don't get as much attention as when, we get, as when we're discouraged. Is this making sense? So some of us like to play the victim. Some of us like to stay discouraged because when I'm discouraged, I get a lot of attention. I also want you to know when you're discouraged, you've basically been rendered useless because you have no courage. Paul found himself incorrigible. Jesus showed up, he was encouraged, and then he was escorted. Can you be encouraged? Are you able to be encouraged? Or do you like to be discouraged? 
I'm telling you, some of y'all, I'm wondering, I'm going to be careful. I've noticed people in general, because I can't say it's just at this church. I've noticed some people in general like to have junk in their life. And I'm like, ugh. That's like the cooties when the little boys, when they were in elementary school, ooh, the good boy kissed the girl, ooh, the cooties. That's how I am about drama. I'm like, ooh, the drama. Ugh. It's ooky. I got so allergic to drama, I started having conversations I wasn't comfortable having. I started asking questions I never asked before because I hated drama. I hate division. I hate that junk. And I love people. I love people more than I like drama. And so it caused me, this love for people and this ickiness with drama, caused me to start asking questions I wasn't used to asking. Did I do something wrong? Did I say something wrong? It caused me to humble myself. Did I do something to cause you to act this way? Or can you help me understand why you said that? Can you help me understand what you meant when you said that? You see what I'm saying? Why? Because I don't like it. It's worse than mosquitoes. Anybody got bit lately? Just everybody raise your hand real quick. Y'all got bit. You could have been laying in bed, got bit in bed. I don't like it. Why stay there? None of us have to stay there. Can I get an amen? Can we be incorrigible? Am I able to be encouraged. Am I able to have courage poured into me? Hmm. Am I open for courage, courage to be poured into me? Or am I closed off and I don't want no courage? You can keep your courage. I'd rather be mad. I'd rather be offended. That was Paul. Paul could have stayed right there. Paul could have stayed in that jail cell discouraged. He could have died in that jail cell discouraged. That could have been the end of Paul's story. But it wasn't. There was so what was it in Paul that allowed him to be encouraged? What was it? His relationship with Jesus. You don't think he wasn't down before? Paul's been down many times. But he realized that when I'm down, Jesus shows up or he sends somebody to help me get up. So Paul had a little flicker of hope inside of him that said, Jesus just might show up. This one's bad, but Jesus just might show up. I believe he's going to show up. I hope I need him to show up. And when he showed up, he went, I can breathe again. I can live again. I'm free from this discouragement. I'm freed from this junk. I don't want it no more. That's my story. Mm -hmm. 
I don't like fighting with Cheryl. I don't like it so bad it made me start humbling myself and asking questions I didn't want to ask and working through junk I didn't want to work through and taking what was mine. And so ask yourself the question. In fact, ask God, am I encourageable? Am I open for courage to be poured into me? It was bad for Paul, but it could have stayed bad for Paul. You see, that's what discouragement gets you. It gets you a longer sentence. Discouragement keeps you from getting escorted to the next place. No movement with discouragement. Hit the pause button. Everything stops. This could be a different sermon today. That could be a different chapter in the Bible today. Because Paul was flesh and blood just like we're flesh and blood. Paul felt what we felt. Come on, somebody. One little flicker of hope. Jesus walks in the room and his fire is lit again. It can change in a moment. I believe God slaps back when we don't slap back. I believe God slaps back when we take the way of escape. I believe God slaps back when we're incorrigible. Number four, I believe God slaps back when we trust God for our next move. Paul just trusted God for the next move and he had absolutely nothing to do with the next move. Some of us miss the move of God because we're not involved enough. Did y'all heard that? I just heard that. That was for me. Take me a note. I'm serious. That's a word for me. That's where I'm at right now. I'm wrestling with not being involved. I'm wrestling with trusting God for my next move, whether he needs me involved or not. God, this is freeing. I'm glad you get to watch it. God slaps back when we trust God for our next move, no matter what our involvement is. Number five, God slaps back when we realize there are more on our side than the enemy's side. There are more on our side than the enemy's side. The enemy showed up with 40 plus. Jesus shows up with 470. Lord, help us to see. Help us to see, help us to see, help us to see right now. God, I'm believing you right now for scales to fall off of our eyes. Right now. 2 Kings chapter 6. Watch this. Verse 15. Elijah and his servant are in, I, I, the way I see it, they're in a cabin off in the mountains. It's a, it's a cool, rustic cabin. It's just the way I see it. There's a fire brewing. There's coffee brewing. A fire burning. Coffee brewing. Not the other way around. <laughs> you don't want burnt coffee in a brewing fire. It don't work. It throws the moment off. The fire's burning and the coffee's brewing. And it's a little cool outside. And, a, and Elijah and his servant are in the cabin. And the servant walks outside the cabin. 
Watch what happens when the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside. You see, he was waiting for the coffee to finish. There were troops, horses, and chariots. Here's the, here's the word. Everywhere. Everywhere. I would underline that word. Everywhere. Because everywhere is a big word, right? Because everywhere is everywhere. Last time I checked. Oh, sir. <laughs> I mean, what a wake-up call. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Come on, man of faith. That's how a man of faith talks. There are more on our side than there is on his, on theirs. Verse 17, then Elijah prayed. <laughs> he didn't even get into the battle. He didn't even pray about the battle. He prayed for the servant's eyes. Yes. Oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elijah was filled with horses and chariots of fire. What he couldn't see because of the enemy, God showed him and helped him to see beyond the enemy. And he saw in that moment that the enemy is surrounded by chariots of fire. Heaven's got the enemy surrounded. It don't matter how big the enemy is, God's bigger. If you just have some eyes to see, if you just ask God to help you see, God, help me to see past my problems. Help me to see past these distractions. My God, I've been praying that lately. Help me to see past my distractions. Help me to see past my pain. Ah! Sometimes you'll never get over your pain until you learn to see past it, that God will use your pain. What the enemy meant to harm you with, God's going to turn it into a weapon. The Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elijah was filled with horses and chariots of fire. What I find really interesting is there weren't any people. You know what that tells me? God don't need me, but he likes to use me. But he reminds me, I don't need you. Last time I checked, I'm still God, and you are still my creation. I like to use you, but if you don't want to show up, I'll show up myself. Say Shazam. <laughs> So the next time, life, somebody, the government, the news media, a friend, an enemy slaps you, just look them in the eye and say, God's going to slap you back. It was good to know you. It was good to know you. Because after God slapped you, you're going to be unrecognizable. So the good news is I don't have to fight my own battles. Notice in this story, Elijah never picked up a weapon. His weapon was faith. His weapon was trust. 
His weapon was he knew who he was in Christ. He knew who he was in God. He understood, I'm a child of God. My father knows how to love. He knows how to defend. He knows how to protect. He knows where I'm at. He knows the traps of the enemy. He's already got a way of escape. He's already working on somebody's heart to get me out of that situation. And if they won't move, chariots of fire and horses from heaven will show up. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see beyond what is in front of us. God, we got to see beyond our offense. We got to see beyond our hurt. We got to see beyond the disappointment, beyond the, beyond the struggles, beyond the failures, beyond the mistakes, beyond the rebellion. We got to see beyond God. And just like Elijah prayed for the servant, I'm praying for this church today, God, that you would help us to see, give us eyes to see, and help us to see beyond. Help us to see that you're the God who loves. And your perfect love casts out all my fear. You're the God who knows where I am. You're the God who keeps up with me. You're the God that protects me and provides for me. You're the God that never makes a mistake. You're the God that's perfect in all of his ways, whether I understand it or not. You're the God that has the plan for my life. And your plan is better than my plan. You're the God I can trust. You're the God I can find confidence in. You're reliable. You're trustworthy. You're always faithful. You're always deserving of our praise. I've never known a love like this, Lord. And I don't know if I'll ever find the end of it. I don't know if I'll ever find out how deep it is or how wide it is or how high it is. I don't know if I can even comprehend it all, Lord. But you love me. You defend me. When my accusers come, you stand in my place. You bring the records. Innocent. Cleared of all charges washed away. God, help us to see today that there's more surrounding our enemy than the enemy showed up with. Jesus, thank you for teaching us today that even in the darkest night, even in the loneliest place, find us and you stand over us and you lift us you knew this about us a long time ago that we were fragile 
that we would get down, discouraged. We'd get stuck. so grateful that Jesus you know how to break through my hard heart my stubbornness my pride my mistrust my barriers my walls you know how to pass through my guard thank you Jesus no one looking around today with your eyes closed and your heads bowed you showed up to church today and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity right now. You say, man, I just want to meet this Jesus. Can I just meet Jesus? If that's you, just raise your hand real quick. Anybody in the room? Praise God. Stay in this, in this mode for just a minute. If today's message it's got you in a place where you've realized I've been discouraged or maybe I am discouraged. Maybe you realize I've been down and out and the enemy's gotten really big in my eyes. My offense has gotten really big to me. If that's you, just raise your hand. That's what I thought. All across the world. Praise you, Jesus. He knows. He knows. He knows. Let's pray this together this morning. God, I'm so grateful that you love me like you do. You don't leave me stuck, discouraged, down and out. You know where I'm at, and you show up. You're proactive. You're the God who shows up. I've been discouraged. I've been distracted. The enemy's gotten really big. So is my offenses. So is my wounds. So is my disappointments. So has my failures. They've gotten so big. Jesus, I need encouragement. So I posture my heart right now for you to pour courage into me because I don't have any. I need yours. It's perfect. It's exactly what I need. Pour your encouragement into me, Jesus. Open my eyes. Let me see that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Thank you. Thank you for your presence in this place.
you're mighty and strong. You're always up to something. In Jesus' name, amen.